0: this afternoon, I'd like to share with you some reflections on another paragraph in the Genjo Koan. It's on the kind of the second page here. Uh, It will be this paragraph enlightenment or awakening is like the moon reflected in the water. And before I get to those specific lines, I, I, uh, again, want to really point out that the, the Dogan's giving us a kind of a different story or a different narrative of of the flavor of freedom or the flavor of awakening than we sometimes find in in early Buddhism or in, in Theravada. And I've found it so helpful for really specific reasons in my life. And I, again, want to come back to that very simple um, distinction that I shared with you at the beginning, that we have these two stories, right? We we have the story of the journey that we I start over here, right? On your on your right here, and then I practice some, I practice a little bit more, a little bit more, and then I'm over here. Awakening. Whoo! Ah, nice. Hmm. And then Dogen. Oh, practice happens here and awakening happens right here. Practice. Awakening. Same moment. Just this. And I want to point out, I love both of these stories. And I find it really helpful to hold both of these stories. Do they make sense together? Probably not, but I find them really useful and to have an expansiveness in my mind and heart to, to be able to hold multiple stories about the path, the ones that feel effective, the ones that, that carry me onward. Like just to come back to this story of the journey, you know, that we find in Theravada, you know, the, the, the Buddha will talk about the gradual training It comes in very different, various different forms. And we've touched a little bit upon it, upon it at times. These really uh, amazing elements that I found so transformative and how they build up on top of one another. This training in ethics, the way I was talking about it last night in the Q and A the, 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 of how sweet it is to enjoy, to savor our ethical conduct, to savor the, the sweetness and the pleasure of generosity. It's such a, a powerful thing to land. You know, when I started to practice, I was like generosity. Yeah. Hmm. But the feeling of that, wow. And to, to really get what it feels like to, truly be generous and to truly receive. I wanna say that the practice of generosity is not just giving, it's about receiving too. And from that, there's a settling that happens in our hearts and our systems. And that can lead to samadhi, the mind being more collected, the heart being more collected. Another kind of wholesome pleasure. And that can set up this clear scene, panya, wisdom, to see the way things are. So there's a quality of non-clinging, to the heart's release. It's a brilliant model. It's a brilliant description of a, of a journey to freedom or the journey through the brahmaviharas, these these practices of the heart, how transformative they can be. And I think such a story of a journey, it honors our, sometimes our deepest aspirations which I think for me at least are are so important to have in our lives, your most heartfelt, wise aspirations, whether it be simply wanting to be a better person in the world, the aspiration to be a better parent or a better grandparent, the aspiration just to connect with others, the aspiration for more ease or contentment in your life. Those are beautiful aspirations. And I hope that we also have aspirations for the communities that we live in, the society that we live in. We need them. Especially when I look at the the troubled world that we live in. An aspiration of of Something that holds wisdom and love. What, what a beautiful thing to hold in our hearts. So I feel like we need vision and aspiration for our lives and for the society that we live in. So I just want to be clear about that. This 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 notion of a journey, the spiritual journey, I found so important. And the reason why Dogen's a different version has been so important to me is not because there's something wrong with this story or narrative of, of journey. It's because w- what I discovered is the way my h- mind holds the idea of journey, whether it be a spiritual journey or a journey and other aspects of my life. It's the way I hold it that causes so much dukkha, so much suffering. So I want to talk a little bit about that and how, uh, this this certain aspect of of Zen practice, in in terms of Dogen's vision, has been so helpful. And I remember this getting really clear to me when I was ordained. I was after about a i was it was probably about after a year of being ordained. I was practicing very diligently and and very earnestly. You know, Rinzai Zen is. I always like to say it's a young person's sport. <laughs> You get up at three o'clock in the morning, and then you'd sit and you'd go to sleep at nine thirty at night. Um, they were long days, and it was filled with work and practice. You know, our days off. I like to always share about our days off. Our days off would be would feel so sweet compared to that because you you get to get up at five thirty instead of three, which was so nice. <laughs> get to sleep in. Ah, ooh, it feels so good and then um and then you still have to do you know kind of a formal um uh breakfast and then you'd have work in the in the morning and then you'd have a formal lunch and then you'd have your day off after lunch but then the what's called these clappers would clap at four ten in the afternoon so that you'd have to go back into the meditation hall for the rest of your uh for your for your day so that was your quote unquote day off <laughs> And I was really into it. I was really, my heart was on fire about the Dharma. But I hit this huge wall. And I had this, this, uh, it was maybe painful realization that my diligent practice was really mostly being fueled by my sense of unworthiness. A sense of lack that it was, it felt so deep, like it was in my bones that something's wrong with me. And if I practice really hard, finally, finally, I'll go beyond that. It was this dynamic, to put it generally, it's, it's kind of you know, wanting to be the kind person or the good person or the person that didn't have something wrong with them, that wasn't flawed. And then I'd have some experience of really strong mindfulness or the heart opening. And it would be like, oh yeah, nice. And then, then it'd go away. Have you experienced that, how it goes away? <laughs> and sometimes my, you know, it'd feel like my practice was crashing and my mind just being lost or lost in aversion, self-judgment, and boom, I was back in this world of unworthiness, back in this world of like, wow, something's wrong with me. And then I'd climb out of it again have some strong mindfulness, oh, kindness and heart opening, ah, mm, the practice unfolding. And then boom, another difficult patch. Ah, man, there's something wrong with me. I am no good. Have you ever noticed this cycle? <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> well, at least a couple of people are nodding. <laughs> It, and I noticed, started to notice, it was just this cycle. I mean, and, and, and spiritual practice was the promise for something different. And here was the same old cycle again. Now the, the Buddha for craving has this image in you know, these early Buddhist texts of, of a rabbit caught in a snare and at running circles, trying to be free. But it's just the same circle. It's the same hamster wheel. This is this da- dynamic of unworthiness or something's wrong with me or feeling not enough in some way. It fits in with this Theravada teaching around Becoming. Trying to become somebody. right? And on retreat, it's sometimes it's in the down points, it can be, you know, you look around and you're like, well, oh, every, everyone else is kind of doing retreat here, but I'm just flailing, I can't really do it, I'm just faking it. And really the opposite is part of the cycle. Man, I'm so good at this. Those other people, huh? Same cycle. We're still caught in the circle of becoming of not enough. And I want to point out that this sense of lack or sense of unworthiness can also uh shape our understanding of awakening in unskillful ways. Uh, there's a the psychologist Jack Engler, really wonderful guy. I interviewed him for this online course. He it was kind of a part of uh, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, even in the early days where that organization arose. And he's written a lot about these kind of these unconscious, unconscious kind of desires that we can bring to spiritual practice that are important to see and to reveal. And he has a list of them. And the, the first one, which he thinks is the most important, is what he calls this quest for perfection and invulnerability. So quote, he says, awakening can be imagined as a heaven sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal. a state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled a state in which we finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything, above criticism and reproach and above all immune to further hurts or disappointments. Wouldn't that be nice? Practice can be motivated in part by the secret wish to be special. If not superior enlightenment will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that has been lacking in our lives. Because narcissistic issues are so pervasive, per, pervasive in character development and across every level of functioning, this is usually the most important of these kind of underlying tendencies. Maybe like me, you've noticed that, that there can be that impulse of, oh, maybe finally I'll become and I'll be seen as the unique special person that I want to be seen as. right, immune to further hurts or disappointments. And this sense of not enough or never enough, that's, well, we come by it honestly. We inherit it sometimes through family, sometimes through the messages of society around notions of success, and the things we get affirmed around. There's this great poem by uh Billy Collins. I don't know if you know the American poet Billy Collins, really a wonderful poet. And he has this poem, My Favorite 17-year-old high school girl. It's kind of like the it's about the subtle messages we get from parents. And so when I read this, you have to imagine that here to imagine here are these parents, one of the parents of the 17 year old high school girl, speaking to her, you know, so this is what they're, what what this, this parent is saying to their, to their daughter, their 17 year old daughter. So they say, do you realize that if you'd started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year. (laughs) Of course, you can have done that all alone. So never mind. You're fine just being yourself. You're loved for just being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture? Joan Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait, I mean, he had invented the calculator. (laughs) Of course... There will be time for all that later in your life after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all of your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. But then she was beheaded, so never mind that as a role model. <laughs> a few centuries later, when he was your age, Your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism. Not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. (laughs) Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15, or if Maria Cala- uh, Callas debuted as Tosca at 17. We think you're special just being you. Playing with your food and staring into space. <laughs> By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes. But that didn't doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. Right, these... Subtle messages we receive. <laughs> this not enough. This striving to become. And there is a collective dimension to this too. I'm speaking about the U.S. here. This comes from. I really appreciate the writer David Loy pointing this out about this collective dimension of how we're inculcated in dominant, this dominant culture of the feeling of never enough. Consumerism, that's what fuels consumerism, is we never have enough. All of those messages around that. We're never safe enough. This country has the largest, by far the largest, military expenditure in the world. And always we're told we're never safe enough. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world because we feel like we're never safe enough. So in some ways we swim in it, maybe some of us more than others. I want to acknowledge that. You know, again, some maybe I'll maybe able to relate to this and others maybe not so much. But even if, if this level of this sense of not enough or becoming doesn't feel like it, it fits the the Thai forests monastic Ajahn Sumato really points to the to the subtlety of this he says, "When I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. He said. but then by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see that it's a created condition. I began to see that I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was an assumption that I had created. So I want to point out, this this can be a, a pretty central way of how we see ourselves in the world. And again, just as I began this talk, I love the story of, a journey, of the journey, there's a place for it. But sometimes there's these underlying hooks that are so important to see. So for me, in my imagination, when I imagine Dogen reading, writing the Genjo Koan, I think to myself, he was all over this. Like he, he got it. Ah, this is, this is why he wrote the Genjo Koan. This is why he wrote this paragraph. And this is how I feel like it's speaking to me. It's addressing this in some manner. And yes, I want to acknowledge I guess we've hopefully pointed this out that (laughs) you've probably noticed about the Genjo Koan and a lot of Zen is it's it's so weird. It can feel so confusing and difficult to understand. And uh, there can be an an advantage to that. And, And it allows us to sense into this practice in a little bit different way. Like I remember I was uh, uh, leading a study group on the Genjo Koan. It was a few years ago in in Flagstaff, and one of the participants uh, put it well. He said, you know, I don't understand what Dogen is saying, but but now I have a feeling sense of it. That's what we're looking for. Just as I said about insight being like uh, riding a bike. I can't tell you how to ride a bike, but... I know the feeling of it. If you give me a bike, I can I can ride it. I but I can't I don't know how to put it in words. It's that feeling that we're looking for. Remember the Zen master I was practicing with you know one of the I was a a monk in the Rinzai Zen tradition, so working with Koans in a very formal way was a, a big part of the practice. And he said, you know, he was complaining. He liked to complain a lot about us. That's kind of the Zen spirit. He said, you know, all of you come in and you, you say one of two things to me. You come in crying, saying, Roshi, I don't understand this practice. Where he says, just as bad, you come in all happy thinking, Roshi, I understand this practice. <laughs> Both are off the mark. This is something different. And I felt like in that statement, he was talking about getting the feeling of this, like being on a bike rather than, oh, I understand it, I can tell you. Or, oh, I don't understand, I can't tell you. So let's look at these sentences, see what maybe can come out. In this context right. enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. the moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken for me there's something so powerful about that right there's the there's the vastness of the moon in the water and it, it's it's not getting wet and and also the the water is not broken by such a a vast, you know, thing there in the sky. And although its light is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass or even in one drop of water. the the tiny world of the dewdrop so evanescent and within it is the vastness and limitlessness of the, of the moon. You know, that common symbol or expression of awakening that you find in Zen of, of the moon. So it's like in my limited, imperfect, broken life, in the dewdrop of my life, there it is, this vastness, this wholeness right there. The whole moon and the entire sky are right there within my small little life, within the brokenness of my life. There it is. As as Paul Valery once said, there is another world and it is in this one. Can you touch that? To touch the vastness, the limitlessness of the entire sky and the moon in your limited, imperfect life. I think for me, what, what, what's the seduction is I get so caught up in meanness, the smallness of my life, and, and I, I forget to see that there's this vast moon within experience. It's always there, it's already there. I don't have to look somewhere else, it's right here. It's just this in this moment. So this is so helpful, I have found, around the sense of not enough. Because from this, it doesn't matter if there's a feeling of not enough. It's just a feeling. It doesn't mean that there's not a, a vastness of the moon right there. You know, as Dogen says a little later on in that paragraph... You cannot hinder enlightenment just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. Phew. Isn't that a relief? All, all the craziness in your mind, all the stuff that comes up, it's it's not going to hinder the moon. It doesn't matter how small and petty those things are. The, the moon is still there. It's just it's just that we we're not seeing it we miss it and this is a theme that you find in in buddhism as it you know as it travels across china and into japan and korea and, and there's a story in the lotus sutra the lotus sutra is a is a buddhist text that that has a a huge influence on uh chinese buddhism and and the uh, Buddhisms that flower from that. So I'd like to share with you a story from the Lotus Sutra that gives a little bit different sense of the vision of, of practice and the vision of the unfolding of practice. And this is a story of a mother and a son. And this son's mother is of great, nobility and great wealth. And so the story goes, the son at a very young age, somehow he gets separated from his mother and ends up living in other countries, wandering around seeking food and work and shelter, really quite lost and just getting by little by little. And after many, many years, of struggling in his life, of just getting by, the son, unaware of it, enters back into the country of his mother. And so he is walking the streets of this city. And, this, and, and his mother, you know, one day catches sight of him in the streets and is so moved by that. Here's, here's my, my son. And so at once she sends a messenger to contact him and to bring him back home. And so this messenger comes to the son to call him back home. And when the messenger comes to him, his first thought is fear. Man, I I must've done something wrong. You know, how could somebody say this to me? This is crazy. This is a crazy story. And so what does he do? He runs away. That just is dangerous to believe the messenger. And so the messenger goes back and tells the mother about this. And then she realizes, oh, interesting. He doesn't have the capacity to really understand his family, his birthright. So then she decides to send out a few other messengers dressed in other kind of work clothes. And he's looking for work and so one of them says, Hey, hey, you can come over to this property here and uh, shovel dirt and through that, you know, we'll pay you a, a day's wage. You'll get a little bit of food. So please come. So he's like, Okay, this sounds like a good job. So over years of coming into the palace of his mother, he's just working. Mm-hmm. Shoveling dirt. And his mother gets close to him by wearing the workers' clothes and working together with them. And then after many years of working so close to her, they she he he grows accustomed to her. And gradually, as they connect, she starts to introduce him just to his no his to her nobility and her wealth. And then it's just before she dies that she reveals to him, oh, you are actually my son. And this is your true home. This is your birthright. And it was then that the son can take that in. Oh, here is my birthright here. Here is my true wealth, my nobility. It's the same thing for us. It's just coming to rest in this nobility and wealth of our lives to claim our birthright. Not becoming, rather finding, finding our true home. And resting there. And why hasn't it happened before in our lives? It's kind of just like the sun, isn't it? It's, it's because there's not the capacity in the heart to rest there. To open in a way. Maybe this is what practice is all about. Maybe this is what it is to see clearly. So practically, when I said it's this perspective that allows for a deep acceptance. And yeah, I still need to engage in the practice again and again and again. You know, the continuity of practice, the frequency of being present. And then it feels like I can start to sense into my true home, the true refuge. What is the true refuge? Sometimes what is seen as the true refuge is awareness itself. the true home of awareness itself. And some of you might be familiar with this. There's so many traditions that talk about this fundamental nature of awareness being so connected with our freedom and awakening, like in Tibetan Buddhism with zogchen and Mahamudra in Zen. You see this, you know, often like uh, the great uh, son or uh, Zen master Chinul, the Korean Zen master or Advaita Vedanta or in some aspects of the Thai forest tradition. You know, Ajahn Semedo speaks to this. He says, awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge that you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked and not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. That's what we're beginning to touch. Awareness itself. I mean, just to acknowledge, it's such a mystery, don't you think, to be aware? I mean, here we are on this teeny, teeny little planet in this vast universe engaged in such a mysterious activity of simply being aware. What's up with that? It's hard to say if there's other corners of the universe where being aware, this awareness is happening. Maybe it is. Isn't that weird? A trip? (laughs) That's what I love about retreat just to have a days just to to partake in the mystery of that. So what's it like to start to become curious about awareness itself, the process of being aware? You know, that's happening all the time. It's not like I have to make it happen. If you can hear the sound of my voice, awareness is happening, just to let you know. (laughs) There it is. It's so close. And sometimes it can be interesting just to see what it's like to rest in being aware. Not resting in some place, but just this pervasive activity that's happening right now, like with the sound of my voice coming and going, or feeling the body sitting. Here it is, awareness. And just to rest in that. So sometimes the instruction that I found helpful at times, just to taste this differently is a is instructions that you find in Zogchen, which is uh, the encouragement to, in this moment right now, don't meditate. This is really important. <laughs> to see what it's like to drop meditating right now. Just like drop it. And don't be distracted. And in that space, just to kind of rest, to see like, oh, here awareness is right here. Like I don't have to like make it happen. (laughs) And sometimes it's nice just to take a break from meditating and just to rest. And in that resting, you might might feel, oh, here it is. Oh, yep, awareness is right here. It's like, you can't get away from it. <laughs> What's it like to turn the attention to awareness itself in that way, just to rest there? Another instruction that's really helpful if you want to play with this is to do this just short moments, just to be like, eh, I'm over the meditation thing. (laughs) And just to rest in being and being aware, you don't have to be aware of something specific just to take part in the mystery of this process of being aware. For me, sometimes it feels so relieving. It's like there's an effortless mindfulness that's right there that I can contact. And it can feel, for some people, open and vast like the sky. It's luminous in the sense of it's aware of experience, so luminous like the moon. Ajahn Amaro puts this practice well, he says, rest in the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Or we could say in this context, just rest right now in the natural peace and ease of awareness that's happening right now. Just that. Which is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And then whenever, whenever anything arises that interferes with that natural peace and ease, attend to that. You might want to play with that, that sense of every so often, just to rest in awareness like that. Dogen puts it well in another fascicle, another essay, he said, You should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and instead learn the backward step. Because sometimes it feels like that just to kind of drop it all and just learn the backward step of just resting. Rest in the natural peace and ease, which is the natural peace and ease. And whenever anything arises which interferes with that natural peace and ease, attend to that. So there it is, right? There, there's the the dewdrop of our lives, the imperfection of our lives, the wandering mind, the complications, and right there, right right there, immediately, there's awareness. There's there's the vastness of the sky. There's the full moon right there. Something so wondrous about it. Yeah. Pachot says it well. He says, "You know, it's it's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. It's true. Anything. It, it's not like anything they compare it to. Just this simple act of being aware. And as I mentioned before, you know." Y- You can't hinder this, you can't hinder awakening or enlightenment, you can't hinder the moon and the sky and the small dew drop. Just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. And it can feel like that, it can feel like, you know, our mind being lost in thought, all the crazy thoughts, our neuroses, there can't be a moon here. So really shaking that up, undermining any kind of sense of not enough or something's wrong with me. Even if you want something to be wrong with you, you just can't do it. You're not going to be able to hinder it. You, you can't hinder your birthright. And as he points out, enlightenment does not divide you just as the moon does not break the water. Isn't that amazing? Like something so vast as the moon does not break the dewdrop. Awakening won't destroy you. And, and I think this is important because I, I, I know many people and maybe some of you here that we, when we really begin to engage in this practice, really give our hearts over to it, and there's this letting go that can start to happen, it can feel incredibly disruptive and scary. Because it feels like we're losing a, our sense of ourselves, which you are, <laughs> So there's something true about that, but it's not a bad thing to disrupt kind of the, the, the false grounds that we've created that really doesn't serve us. So it's good to know that, that awakening doesn't divide us. It's really just freedom beginning to enter into our lives. And maybe this whole awakening thing in this image isn't about becoming special, like what Jack Engler was talking about. Maybe it really is just about being ordinary. Really ordinary. You know, I had a... I know I had a friend who went to... um, this monastery in Thailand, Wat Papong, which was, uh, Ajahn Chah, if those of you know, Ajahn Chah was Ajahn Chah's first, uh, monastery. And I think it was when Ajahn Chah fell ill, uh, one of his students, Ajahn Liam, uh, took over, uh, uh the monastery. So he, he'd, he's been the, the abbot there since 1982. And if you ever read about Ajahn Liam, there's a really, there's a, a book of his, I think it's called No Worries. And there's a description of his awakening, which is really, I find moving, just the way he describes the heart opening in this really profound way. Um, And the way he describes it is, yeah, just inspiring. It's like a classical Theravada description of full awakening. So, So a lot of people think like, he's the dude, you know, he's, (laughs) he's really thought to be this fully awakened person. And, and so I know this person who went to, uh, to visit Ajahn Liam at Wapapong. And so um, he goes there and uh, he goes into the, the monastery grounds and he's trying to find Ajahn Liam, And uh, luckily he finds uh, one of the monks there sweeping the grounds. And uh, so he goes up, you know, bows to the monk and says, um, please, I'm, I'm just wanting to visit uh, Luangpur Liam or Ajahn Liam, the abbot. He says, oh, that's me. <laughs> and he said, what was so striking about Luangpur Liam, Ajahn Liam, was just this ordinary monk that you would look over. There's nothing charismatic about him or grand. Just an ordinary person doing ordinary things like taking care of the monastery grounds. Maybe that's what it is—to to discover the the moon in the dewdrop, just to live an ordinary life. As the Zen Master Tokusan said. He said, "What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grab an ordinary person's life." So this might be something that you play with every so often just to rest and being aware. And I highly recommend to continue with your meditation because <laughs> what you'll notice is a lot of times we try to do this and it's, it's so much more interesting just to do it. You know, as this uh, great Tibetan master says short moments, many times because it, it, to catch that sense of non-doing, And it works better just a few seconds of, oh, okay, just to rest in awareness. And then go back into meditating, just to play around with that. No rest, oh yeah, no need to do anything. And then come back into the practice that we're talking about. Because if you try to do it all the time, you're gonna try to do it all the time. (laughs) That's kind of antithetical to simply resting in one's birthright. Yeah, so may we all discover uh, the vast and limitless moon and sky within the dewdrop of our lives in a way that is for the benefit of all beings. So let's, let's sit just for a moment here.